Welcome to another edition of On The House, the most prorogued podcast on the planet. <laughs> Every week we meet up to talk politics over a pint after Parliament and then Parliament keeps getting suspended. But at least this time it's a short one and a relatively good reason. I struggle to describe it as such because there's a Queen's speech next Monday, which is why increasingly Westminster is in lockdown. So with an election coming up, eventually, we may well be following the longest parliamentary session ever with the shortest session ever. I'm Philip Lee, Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament for Bracknell and prospective parliamentary candidate for Wokingham next door, where I'll be crossing swords with John Redwood. With me as ever is my fellow Liberal Democrat and Conservative escapee Sam Geemer, Member of Parliament for East Surrey, and we've yet to hear who he's going to be crossing swords with at the next election. Maybe Sam might give us some hints, or maybe that's a, something for another podcast, Sam. It's been another good... Um, I'll reveal that to Marc Francois first, <laughs> who keeps trolling me on, uh, in the media. It's been another good week for the Liberal Democrats, hasn't it? With Heidi Allen now joining us as well. What do you think, Sam? It's long overdue, wasn't it? I mean, Heidi took what I would call the, the scenic route uh, from the Conservative Party to the Liberal Democrats via Change UK, via an independent, but I'm glad she's joined. I think she's found her political home. It's just another thing that shows the Liberal Democrats are growing from strength to strength. 19 MPs in Parliament, you know, almost twice the number of MPs that the DUP have. Yeah. And in this Parliament, the DUP have held the whip hand. The Liberal Democrats are actually growing from strength to strength. Uh, and what about this claim of Heidi's that there are 20 more One Nation Tories who will join the Lib Dems? Do you think it's as many as that? I think there are probably 20 who should join the Lib Dems. Uh, there are a lot of Conservative MPs now who are what I'll call Liberal Conservatives, whose natural home would be the Liberal Democrats. Whether they identify that and cross the floor is another issue. I think one of the challenges that we, the Liberal Democrats, have got to get across is that the party's gone through a rebirth. 120,000 members, 75% of whom have joined since 2016. This is a new party in many senses, and I think the more people like our old colleagues realise that, the more likely they are to follow you and I, Philip. Yeah, absolutely. And successfully fundraising, building its infrastructure. I mean, this party is growing, Sam, and I think it's really, really exciting. Well, um, just returning, uh, obviously, to this week. Uh, for once, the biggest thing in politics this week wasn't happening inside Parliament, but literally outside and all across the country and indeed the world. Extinction Rebellion protests calling for an emergency climate change action are paralysing parts of London. We've seen preemptive arrests, protesters camping out overnight in the city, and people even gluing themselves to the doors of the Home Office and the Department for Transport. And the nature and seriousness of the climate change threat has won support for the protests from surprising sources. Many of the protesters are older people and otherwise mainstream voters who are deeply concerned at where the planet is heading. Our Prime Minister, might have dismissed them all as uncooperative crusties, but his own father, Stanley Johnson, supports Extinction Rebellion and says he's proud to be a crusty. So with us this week, we to talk about Extinction Rebellion and whether there's a meeting point between its utopian demands and what we think of as mainstream politics is spokesperson Sarah Lunnan. She's a former Green Party councillor for Stroud Central and now an Extinction Rebellion coordinator. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to On The House. How are you? How am I? I'm at liberty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> roaming, yeah, still roaming the streets of London. How am I? That's such a good question. 
I'm incredibly nervous, I'm incredibly excited, and I'm also incredibly scared. And I'm really scared that the rebellion doesn't achieve what's needed to achieve, because what we're demanding isn't utopian, it's what's in line with the science. And as long as we're thought of as being utopian, then it just demonstrates how far we've got to move. Just take a step back from that. I mean, you've been a Green councillor in Stroud. I mean, how did you get involved in Extinction Rebellion? Did you feel the Green Party itself wasn't focused enough? Well, earlier on, I was I was talking with Philip about leaving the Conservatives and uh, what it feels like when you leave somewhere that's been your home. I was a Green politician and, you know, I, I spent 14 years in local government and, you know, I've done all the door knocking. I was parliamentary candidate twice. I've done all that kind of stuff. And I've, I've pretty much left Green politics. I'm still a Green Party member, but... I have left the politics and in a way I've left my tribe, I've left my, my Green Party tribe behind now and the, the people who I'm working most closely with are not necessarily party members of, of any party and it does feel, it is a little bit like a bereavement but it's also recognising that the action re- required was not where the Green Party was and the, the radical nature of what's required and the telling the truth was not where the Green Party was. Um, and so it kind of see that you needed to do something different. We needed to put the environment and the climate really on the agenda. And the way we've been doing it for the last 30 years wasn't working. And, it, and there seemed no point in continuing. What wasn't working specifically? And what have you changed? And why do you think you're more likely to be successful now? So if you're having a conversation with someone and you're saying to them, I really think the way we're living is causing life on earth to die, and will you sign my petition? What you're asking them to do isn't commensurate with what you're telling them is going to happen. It's like, you're saying life on earth is dying and you want me to sign a petition or vote for you. If you say life on earth is dying and there is no point in you carrying on in your everyday life, we need to do something radically different. Will you come with me and get arrested so that we can make a change and we can raise this issue? And it's going to involve a certain amount of sacrifice from you, but I really believe it's necessary and I'm prepared to do it. But ultimately, you you have to work through the democratic structures that we've got in that decisions about future government policy and changing the way in which, I don't know, I'm just, just off the top of my head, changing the way we tax consumption, the sort of things that you would, I guess, would want to see in terms to try to get rid of the, the more carbon-intensive uh, consumption patterns, get to a more sustainable picture. All of those things rely upon consent of the people via a democratic process. Ironically, and I, I used to think this when I was on the Energy and Climate Change Select Committee, an autocratic regime can actually do these things much more easily once it decides than a democratic one. This week, if I were to play devil's advocate, you've disrupted people's lives. I'm not questioning whether it was justified because of the issue that you're passionate about, but that was the purpose to draw attention to the issue, which is, I understand the reason to want to draw attention to it. But ultimately, if we're going to change things, we have to be able to legislate for it with the public consent and public support. I mean, presumably these conversations have taken place. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're 
in a way you've hit the nail on the head and it's that failure of our current democratic system to be able to make those decisions mm-hmm. over the last 30 years yeah. and uh, and in most in just about every country of the globe in, in fact has been a failure of governments to be able to take the decisions necessary and in the United Kingdom in Europe has been a failure of the democratically elected governments to be mm-hmm. able to do that yeah. because the changes that we're going to have to make are going to impact people's lives so much no government can do it because mm-hmm. the fear is how will we possibly get elected yeah. again if we're going to ask people to make these changes because well, you're, can you're, I just interject it's because within parties there is a, a sort of a, a cynicism about how people vote yeah and that we not yeah. us Sam I mean we're, we're not like this at all are we Sam but there is a belief that if you start to impact adversely upon people's chosen lifestyle current lifestyle or on their income if you increase tax on flights or, or whatever that they will not vote for you in an election that's and, that's what you hear most in these parts and interestingly one of the things I remember Nigel Farage saying uh, relatively early on it's the most amazing political statement I've ever heard any politician any when trying to get elected make and interestingly he hasn't got elected but Nigel Farage said some things are more important than economic growth and what the Brexit movement has managed to do is to actually manage to persuade people that there is something more important than improving their living standards and economic growth and things get it getting better so that's do you know how idea. they've done that, though? I mean, they've yeah. tapped into some sort I know. Yes. of out-of-date, rose-tinted view of the past when we used to rule the world. OK, and, 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 and it's, accepted. But, it, but I, I do accept your point that people are prepared to take, seemingly, some people are prepared to take a financial hit because of some uh, concept of wrapping themselves in the flag and sovereignty it's, or whatever. I mean, it's... Uh, but but, it, but it's, it's not easy, this, is my point. There's an urgency to change the way in which we are living on Earth, but there is trying to marry that with the political reality on the ground, particularly at a time where there is no one party in front. It's a, mi- it's, it's a bit of a mess, and so therefore... Everyone's scrapping around for votes, trying to get a majority. It becomes quite hard, and you would be described as brave if you started (laughs) to tell people, um, "Okay, you can't have those burgers at McDonald's, or you can't fly planes without increased tax." And I I understand that. And obviously, you you have the. you have the background that, that I don't. You've been elected as, as MPs, you've served as ministers, you've held that responsibility, and so you feel that so much more keenly than, than I do. But one of the things about Exile's Three Demands is the Citizens' Assembly. The idea that you have a, a group of citizens representing our country, representing the age demographic, the sex demographic, the social demographic, to come together to make decisions or to to plan about how we can implement these changes. And at that point, that gives government the ability and politicians the ability to say, to unify around what the Citizens' Assemblies ask for and allows them for the politicians to unify around it without having to oppose. It's the oppositional nature of politics which has got us here, both in Brexit and our inability to deal with the climate. And there's the age-old problem that we get elected every four to five years and to solve these problems requires a lot longer sort of strategy over a number of decades that has to be signed up to and agreed to across party. I think where I would agree with you with citizens' assemblies and things is this deliberative democracy approach 
of getting as many people in a room over a period of time to really understand the science, really understand the evidence. Because I think if they did, I think this applies to Brexit, Sam, I think if people actually yeah. understood the potential impact of this, adverse impact, to their lives and perhaps more importantly their children and their grandchildren, I then think it would actually create an easier democratic environment for politicians to be able to do what I think most of us around this table would agree would be the right thing. Yes, so let's do it. I would cast the whole debate in a more optimistic tone. We can do something about this. The challenge for politics is how do you get the public, and by the public I mean broadly middle class people, along with you because the same public who say they want better health services will vote out a government that increases their taxes and and the same the same public that care about the environment might vote out politicians who then take some of the necessary steps to do it and i think where the efforts by extinction rebellion could make a huge difference is almost in the public education and awareness because you can't blame politicians for sometimes not doing things that are not political. That's what politicians do. They do things that the public will vote for. And um, once one politician has tried to do something serious and been thrown out, the next politician thinks, <laughs> you know, they went for renewables and that didn't work for them, I'm not going to do it. And we've seen that in Australia, in the recent Australian elections, where one candidate who was miles ahead was targeted for their climate change views and credentials, and they lost the election. What I want to know in terms of what you've been doing this week is how you think that's moving the dial in terms of getting the public along with this agenda. Because politicians like Philip and I, we want to act. And I think where we can really work together is actually bringing the public along. How do you see that? It's really counterintuitive, but one of the things that happens when you disrupt something, that forces people to look at, at what is happening. And so it then says, well, wow, those people... They're prepared to line the street, they're prepared to lock on, they're prepared to stop me doing what I normally do. Why are they doing that? You know, what gives them the right to do that? Actually forces you to engage with, with what's going on. In a way that if you stand on the side of the street with a banner, you can just ignore it. You don't have to go and look. It's, it's really but do you think that's what's happening there. Yeah, that's exactly I mean, what's happening. You look at the YouGov polling. You see what happens. Saying these are hippies, um, it's not a serious movement, you know, alleging people are high on drugs. So, so there is a ca- caricature of what is going on that, is, uh, that might take yeah. root in the public's mind well, and I- therefore not engage in the way that you want them to. So whatever you do, if you if you are prepared to um, to say to the system uh, to challenge the system, then the system will find ways to say why you have no right to do that. So if you're wealthy, you're a champagne socialist. If you if you wear sandals, you're a hippie. If you're poor, you're driven by the politics of envy. So they will always find a way to indicate why you have no right to challenge the system. So yes, of course, people are going to come back at why. We have no right to be there. Currently, it's because we're too white and we're too middle class. But, but you know, the science doesn't care. 
you know, the science and the physics will just carry on. Whatever the makeup of those of the people on the streets is, the science is going to carry on and our our world is getting hotter and hotter. We are currently heading for four degrees of warming. And at four degrees of warming, we don't have a stable climate anymore. It won't stay at four degrees. The methane is currently leaching out of the Arctic because the permafrost is disappearing. It really is very, very close to being game over. So well, I'm persuaded, I'm a former science off. minister. I am persuaded that the you know, science here is so compelling. Um, all, in, in some ways, we've already lost. Do you, do you know what I mean? To, to, to be hopeful is almost to imply a, a kind of sense of denial. Everything is going to change in the well, next I, 10 I, years. I think, yeah, I, mean, I think when I say hopeful is that mankind can act and make a difference. Well, we failed spectacularly for the last 30 years. So unless we do something different, unless our democracy radically changes, and maybe it is as radical as what happened in 39 when we had a unity government, because we need something that allows us to come together, to stop being oppositional, and to say we have to deal with this crisis. We really have to. Can you, can you just in terms of the tactics, because lots of people are discussing this, is there anywhere in the world where the Extinction Rebellion tactics have actually made headway in educating the public and shifting politicians to respond. So if you if you look at the polling after April, the, the YouGov polling, the spike in the concern over the, uh, the climate and the environmental agenda was massive. It's now one of the three top issues of concern amongst voters in the UK and it's second amongst young voters. That's a huge shift. No one was talking about the climate. So that's what the protests do is they put the climate on the agenda everybody is talking about it whether they like us or not that's you know it's really interesting i don't have to be liked i just have to be noticed but you, i just but you're have very to likeable. get you talking about it very likable what do you say to people who just say that it's just an anti-capitalist sort of jamboree because i you know allow me to play devil's advocate here one of the worst polluting systems known to man was the soviet union yeah Okay, I went to. I remember going to a lecture at the zoology department in Oxford by this American expert, and he had a map of the world, map of the Soviet Union, and he started pointing and going. There was a nuclear accident here. There was, and it was the most remarkable lecture. That was communism. There is a sense that quite a few people who are active within Extinction Rebellion might not necessarily be pro-capitalist. What do you say to those you know, people who are saying, well, hang on a minute, this is never going to work, this is just socialism by the back door, I don't want that. I mean, how do you marry that? Because I actually think that with a reformed capitalism, you'll get a better outcome on the climate than via socialism or communism. I, I completely agree with you with the impact of, of communism. And my position is it's not the capitalist system that, that's done it, it's our extractive consumerism system which has driven the destruction of our natural world. World, and whether that's through communism or capitalism or some other kind of, of, of governance, it's, the, it's our desire to extract effective fuels that's done it. I, I, I was going to say, and just to follow on for that, there's a load of people now in other parts of the world, the population of the earth has doubled in my lifetime, who have still high carbon dreams, is how I would describe it, who want to consume nice. lots of things because they see on their smartphones what people in the West have been consuming. 
we could go down the path and be really drastic in this country with policy making in order to try to stop climate change, global warming. But it really wouldn't make any difference if a billion Chinese go on to spend the next hundred years leading the lives that we've been leading for the last hundred years. What we can do is impact the government of our country. It's, it's much more difficult to impact what the Chinese are doing. So we, we have to act now. We've been world leaders before. We were world leaders in the Industrial Revolution, right? We can be world leaders in the new climate and ecological revolution. And in a way, we've got a moral duty to do it. You know, we were the start of the Industrial Revolution. We were the start of the fossil fuel burning. And so we can be a start of this different way of being. But the way, the imagining of, our, of, our, of a different way of being has to be based on what resources and what fuel and how much energy we've got that can make that world and it probably won't be capitalism and it probably won't be communism it will be something else based on the science and based on what's available to us it'll be different great i just want to i just want to ask finally about young people and activism because that is absolutely key and the rhetoric to demand the impossible <laughs> how are you doing it and do you think our conventional politics has failed young people Politics has failed all of us, and I think the youth, our young people, feel it more keenly because they're they're looking ahead. You know, they're they're imagining lives and professions and children, and they're facing a world in in which, if you're being honest about what's coming towards us, it's so uncertain. You know, what 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 professions can survive two, three, four degrees of warming? What professions can survive global famine? You know, what professions can survive places like Bermuda where they've just had that huge tropical hurricane going through? So, yes, they've, they've been failed and I think you feel it most keenly if, if you're looking ahead to your life. It's by telling the truth. It's by telling people what they are facing, the full bleakness of it. I mean, there's no way around it. There is no good news on the climate. But if you can tell people the truth, it allows them to act. It allows, it allows you to find a courage. In terms of solutions, innovating and developing our way to zero carbon and stability, do you think that's a pipe dream? I call them the unicorns of carbon capture and storage. That technological solution does not exist yet. Let's hope it does. Let's really, like really hope it does. And Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> but it does it doesn't yet and we will need it. We need to look at it and to look at developing it. But what we really need to do right now is to actually plan for zero carbon as fast and as quickly. It, we require a mobilisation, you know, like we did in 1939. We need a countrywide mobilisation and one that can be taken on across the globe. Meanwhile, back on the world of day-to-day -day politics, we are gearing up for crunch week in the Brexit process. I actually think it might be crunch fortnight. Not that it's really a process, is it, Sam, really? Boris Johnson's one-sided deal is all but dead, although there are rumours currently circulating coming out of Ireland at the moment, and this afternoon as we record this. But there's an EU summit next week which could well bury it and end all negotiations beyond between Britain and the European Union. And the government has sheepishly admitted it will send the letter requesting an extension as mandated by the Ben Act, but will try still to subvert it. What do you think, Sam? 
I don't think he's going to be able to subvert the Ben Act. The government has already given an undertaking to the court of session in Scotland that it will send the letter. And I think if the Prime Minister now refuses to do, he will probably have all the law officers, including Geoffrey Cox, resigning. So legally, I don't see any way for him to circumvent the act. Um, people have talked about him sending two letters. If he does that, he'll be in court before the second letter arrives in Brussels and the courts will quash it. So it's the law and he's got to obey the law. Is there going to be something that's going to pull out of a hat on the Saturday sitting on October the 19th? There is, you know, to use the negotiator's jargon, a pathway to a deal. But we know that any kind of deal he can negotiate is a deal that would involve the backstop. In, in one, they might rebrand it or whatever. And if he ends up with that kind of deal, then he loses the DUP, loses about 10 Conservative MPs at least. And it will require Labour MPs to vote with him. And, and essentially you're saying Labour MPs to vote for a Tory hard Brexit and to rescue Boris Johnson and to give Boris Johnson a general election in which he romps home. So I think the simple maxim here is what he can negotiate with the EU will struggle to get through Parliament and what he can get through Parliament is non-negotiable with the EU. So what do you expect from the Saturday sitting on October the 19th? Well, I, I think the three possible um, issues for that Saturday sitting. One is there is a last-minute deal which you'd want the Commons to vote on, but the Ben Act is very specific on what counts as a deal. So he can't bring back a sheet of A4 and say, here, I've got a deal, and bounce Parliament to vote into it. It would have to be something as substantive as Theresa May's deal, which was 585 pages of the withdrawal agreement, and it was a 24-page, I think, political declaration on the future. So I struggle to see how that could be done in the next eight, nine days or so. The second thing that could happen is a vote on a general election, tries to bounce Parliament into giving him a general election, my guess is most MPs don't only want the extension secure, they want it fully implemented and would be very nervous about voting for a general election before the 31st of October when Johnson would still be rummaging around Downing Street looking for ways to take us out on the 31st. Yeah. And the third is you engineer some kind of vote on the Ben Act, which he calls the Surrender Act, so that when he eventually sends it over, it's, he'll say, Parliament forced me to do it. So I think those are the three likely possibilities from the government side on the 19th. As ever, Parliament will not be sitting down waiting for Johnson to present it with whatever he deems appropriate to vote for it. How do I know that on the cross-party groups of MPs, there are lots of discussions about how Parliament appropriately responds with a solution and a way forward. I mean, it's not really a surrender act, it's more like a child lock act, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, because we have got such an administration, such a group in number 10, that we need, it's been Parliament's responsibility to stop them uh, throwing their toys out of a pram. Can I ask a question of, of yeah, you go guys? Oh, go ahead. So Brexit has just sucked the, like, the political energy for the last three years. Uh, you know, so many things need dealing with. Climate and ecological emergency, top of my list, should be top of everyone's list. But Brexit has just transfixed us, transfixed the media. And 
I don't understand why the Lib Dems would not support Jeremy Corbyn being in a caretaker government, why Joe Swinson wouldn't support for a period of time to actually deal with the issue as it is, come to an agreement, go for a people's vote and then reset the clock. Maybe go for a citizens' assembly as a way of bringing the country together, but actually swallow your pride and go, yep, for the good of the country, we will do this. Uh, th this is the first time I've had anyone talk about the good of the country and Jeremy Corbyn in the same sentence, um, I, I must say. And, um, th this kind of comes back to oppositional politics again and, and our inability to step out of our tribal Yeah, I mean, I mean I, can I, 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 tribal I, I, politics. Yeah. I, 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 I think the reality is, look, even if we were to back him, he still doesn't get enough votes to do it. And so there isn't the support. If you do the numbers, there isn't the support. All Joe Swinson is doing is showing the leadership of pointing out, look, can we just stop wasting our time with this? This isn't going to happen. All right. So if it's not going to happen, let's move on to something that is deliverable. It goes back, I guess, if we were to put it in the context of Extinction Rebellion, we can agree on the science. We can agree that people are free to protest about it and draw attention to it. But in the practical realities of politics within a democracy, it's extremely difficult, not impossible, but it is difficult to actually implement the policies and the change of lifestyle that you seek. In the same way with uh, forming a government emergency administration, you've got to deal with reality in the House. And there are so many different personal agendas in play here. And the great majority, by the way, of the Labour Parliamentary Party never want to see Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. I, I think that is, that is I, I, his I, I own party, a lot of his know, own MPs. What we're privy to, Sam and I, are sort of private con uh, sort of conversations, and, and we don't want to break confidence. The reality is he is never going to... It's just not going to happen. So if it's not going to happen, Sarah, we have to move on to something that could happen. Which, which is what, then? Which what might do, be what Margaret Beckett, like? or it might I think be Ken Clark, I think there is another thing about... Apart from the numbers, I also think to make this successful, if it is a caretaker government that can deal with the challenges, I actually think it should be none of the party leaders leading it. Yeah. Because you want someone who's above the fray, who commands the respect of the House. Because this is a deadlocked parliament. Can I make a plea to you two, then, to actually find that candidate and do it? No, no, no. I, 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 I can speak for myself here. I've spent quite a bit of time on this issue for a number of months because I always thought we would end up at this stage. It's been talked about privately in little groups for over a year. It never gets beyond who should it be. It actually isn't just about one person. It's about who should fulfil the cabinet posts, what the balance in that cabinet should be, whether parties want to be front and centre in that emergency administration or whether they want to retain their identity for the subsequent general election, which will undoubtedly come. The complexity is, is great. G agreeing on the purpose, I, I think Sam and I would agree, we would like to see a referendum, final say referendum on Brexit as a purpose. That actually doesn't necessarily pass the Corbyn leadership team as a purpose. And so I'm, it, I'm not convinced Corbyn yeah, so, 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 really so wants I, it. I think the, you know, there is a, a strong desire, I would say, amongst a significant number of people in Parliament to do this, but get landing it is actually a lot harder and you almost have got to take the personalities out of it and try to work out how it's practically going to work. So Brexit is continuing to engage our parliament. How much longer 
can we afford to remain deadlocked and tying up all of the resources of Parliament over Brexit? And meanwhile, the clock's ticking. Well, the IPCC gave us two years to get a plan to deal with a climate emergency, and yet Brexit has taken the first year of that. We're left with a, with a second year. So how do, how do we deal with it? Well, I mean, my view has always been the quickest way to deal with Brexit was to take a legally deliverable form of Brexit back on a, on a referendum with Remain. Because at least then, bang, it's done. It's deliverable on day one. Then we can move on to all the other issues that Sam and I would desperately want to move on to. Um, that's why, actually, everybody who supports the Extension Rebellion actually should, should be support going back because it is the, the, the neatest, quickest way of actually finding a resolution, whatever the outcome. If the country votes Brexit again, then so be it. But at least we know that it would happen on those terms that were put to the British public. By getting that informed consent, when we can move on and start concentrating on things that you're passionate about, Sarah. And I tell you what, I also think the biggest lie in the Brexit debate so far is no deal somehow ends <laughs> this, right? That's 10 it years doesn't end it at all. But we also know that there are some people in the senior people in the Labour Party who want no deal. They want no deal, but they want the Tories to deliver no deal so that they can blame the Tories and then get back in. So this is kind of the problem that we're dealing with and the reason why Philip and I, over the last year, find ourselves in a completely different political party is because we realise the only way to move this forward is A, stick to our principles and B, if that means being a different party, then so be it. I think the real question here is, is Corbyn serious about addressing the Brexit issue or does he want to be Prime Minister? And if he wants to be Prime Minister, then he's going to dig in. If he's serious about addressing the Brexit issue, there are two or three very eligible candidates who can help in the next few months bring this to a head and deal with it. Are you going to name them? Oh, I think Ken Clark. He's been Education Secretary, Home Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's the father of the House. I think Harriet Harman, who's the mother of the House. Margaret She's, Beckett. Uh, Margaret Beckett. So, and, but the other thing is, these are people who do not want the job themselves. They are at the stage of their political careers where they're willing to move on to other things. And I think that is what is needed at this time, because there have been too many personal agendas, too many people putting their self-interest when it should be the national interest. And that is why I would want to back a prime minister for whom they've done all of that already. And I think that is how we move forward. I know we like to talk Brexit all the time, Sam, but there are other things happening in the world. Um, there are. <laughs> and I particularly am exercised about what's happening in Syria. This week, Donald Trump, in his great and unmatched wisdom, to quote him, unexpectedly withdrew support from the Kurds in northern Syria, abandoning the fighters who had done much of the work to subjugate Islamic State. It was described as one of the biggest acts of betrayal of a foreign ally in living memory. A Turkish attack on Kurdish areas followed within days, driving tens of thousands of people from their homes. Trump's response was the mildest of condemnations, adding that, the, quote, the Kurds haven't helped us in Normandy. I don't know about you, Sam, but 
I, I'm deeply ashamed about this. I can't quite see what the British government is doing and what it's saying. I don't know if you know more, but are we just fast becoming the 51st state in terms of our foreign policy? Because to stand idly by while the Kurdish people who've sacrificed so much to get rid of some really bad people, I find just shocking. What do you think? Well, I think this is pretty serious. And um, not only has Trump essentially sanctioned this by removing US troops, but the Kurds fought with us against Daesh. I think they lost something like 11,000 lives. But you've also got a situation where innocent people are going to die because of our policy in action. I've been very surprised by NATO's uh, response today, which haven't condemned um, Turkey in the strongest possible terms. But it's a member of NATO. Which is what you'd want to see. I I, I think this this is very serious. And if we are going to have a special relationship with the US that means anything, that actually we should be able to stand up to them and stand up to Trump specifically at times like this and also speak truth to the uh, the people of Turkey or I mean, Erdogan to be specific. I mean, to try to broaden this and to bring in Brexit in a funny sort of way, increasingly what this suggests to me is that the Americans are going to have a policy and they're going to follow it. And as a nation, we need to decide whether this is aligns with our own values and how we see the world. And, but, and, and, if, and if not, then we need to have an alternative military um, organization and it's done sort of in our name as a member of NATO we're implicated even though we don't want to be I, I, I just I don't know what you think but I I'm deeply uncomfortable about this because of the precedent it sets. well I mean we are members of NATO and this should be condemned not just by us by all the other NATO members as well it's not just our responsibility to do it but we've got to act what I am worried about strategically is with Brexit and our desperation for trade deals, specifically a US trade deal, you know, at times when our values are challenged and are at stake, we don't feel we can speak confidently because if you're dealing with someone like Trump, that would mean you don't get what you want from him. Well, that's the irony, isn't it? I keep hearing Brexiteers telling me it's all about sovereignty. So it would appear that they're quite happy to give to to give up sovereignty on security and, and other issues and ultimately trade issues to Washington, but weren't happy to do it to Brussels. I think it's called incoherence. <laughs> Sarah, I think you wanted to uh, jump in on on this. Uh, it was merely that um, Philip spoke about that it being an American policy to. Um, to pull out of Syria and protecting the Kurds and I don't think there was a policy there and I think that's one of the most shocking things about the uh, current occupant of the White House is that there is no policy there's no idea about what is going to happen next it's the unpredictability of of having to deal with world events with there being no plan in, in place and no policy nobody really knows what they're dealing with and unfortunately, it's part of the rise of, of nationalism that, that it comes to having the, the idea of a strong leader, that somebody who can take control and take charge without reference to, to other people. And it ends up in war. You know, it ends up in famine and war. And in Syria, it's exacerbated by a 10-year famine, which is, and it all comes back again, comes back to the climate and ecological crisis. And these things are all tied up. Oh, I I get that. And the access to water is the issue in the Middle East more than oil uh, in the longer term. Um, I guess my broader point, though, and I'm agreeing with Sam here, is, is that 
Brexit has a price, and I'm not sure that was on the side of the bus. And I don't think that we had that conversation with the British public about the implications of, of pivoting away from Brussels in the way that we, the public, had voted for in 2016. Somehow, we would then be this independent nation, free to do this, that, and the other. Come on, the reality is, is you've got blocks, America, Russia, China, and the European Union. They're essentially the four blocks of, with power in the world. Which block do you want to be a member of? And I know which block I would have chosen. And I think if you put it like that, particularly in the context of the current American administration, though, actually politics in America is going in that sort of inward-looking direction generally, I think most people would say, of the four, probably Europe would be the better block to be a part of. Well, geography matters. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Europe is 22 miles away. It's, uh, so uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just sort of coming to the end of the podcast. I want to return to Extinction Rebellion again. I'm fascinated by this. Um, Sarah, uh, Extinction Rebellion is strange to me. Decentralised, no leadership as such. Who's directing it? How do you ensure that policy is not driven by the most extreme and hardcore members? So that's a really interesting question because for I imagine for many people our policy is extreme and hardcore because we are basically saying to people, you know, life on earth is dying. At the moment, it looks like it's going to break down and our situation is very, very grave. And thus, we believe the social contract with our government is broken and we no longer have to obey the law of the land. That's a pretty extreme position to take and, and to be in. So in many ways, you know, we are, we are radical and, and we are hardcore. So, and in terms of how our policy is made, groups are decentralised. As long as people agree to abide by the aims and principles of Extinction Rebellion, then they are free to go out and operate under the name of Extinction Rebellion. So people can self-organise. And we, it is basically a self-organising system. There, there is a national group um, which looks at uh, national actions, which looks at organising the actions in London, like, like we've seen over this past week. But then it's up to the individual groups when they come here what they want to take part in and what they want to do. Excellent. I mean, we, we are newly minted Lib Dems. What, what would you say our record, our party's record on climate is? I'm fishing for compliments here. <laughs> OK, so I'm afraid I'm not going to give you any. All of the party's record on the climate and ecological crisis is woeful and shocking. Nobody has done enough. No single party has actually recognised the severity of the crisis we're facing and nobody has been prepared to tell the British public exactly what is facing them. So no one gets any gold stars. No one gets gold stars. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Ending on a positive note there, Sam. Well <laughs> yes, <done>. yes. <laughs> And the end of another diverting week in politics. Everyone, even MPs and climate change campaigners, need to unwind. So as ever, we're asking what we're looking forward to for the weekend. TV, music, the cinema, or just a nice cup of tea in a book. Sarah, you first. I thought I might take a trip down to City Airport. Interesting. You're going to be climbing on a plane, sir. I don't know. We'll see. What about you, Philip? Well, as ever, I'll be watching the rugby in the middle of the World Cup coming in from Japan. And actually, we've got friends around for lunch, Sam, on Sundays. So, um, yeah. Uh, thanks for and not I'm inviting me, by the way. By the way, I'm also campaigning. 
all day Saturday. Oh, good. Forget it. I actually, I'm on a six-day week now. Well, I am fascinated by this row between Colleen Rooney and Becca Vardy. I just think it's what absolutely... What does that say about you, Sam? This, You're this, fascinated. Uh, this, sort of, this wag, sort of a ding-dong that is going on. It's just, a, I think it's a tale of our times. Instagram, you know, a bit of Hercule Poirier thrown in. Yeah. I think Emil Heskey's wife has now joined it. I, I, I yeah. think I'm just going to be following that yeah. as well as um, d- doing everything else. Well done. Well, after that, so I don't know how to say goodbye. And that's the end of this week's edition on The House. We'll see you this time next week for the moment of truth when the government has to decide which way it will jump. Will there be an extension rebellion? So don't forget to subscribe on The House on your favourite podcast app. In the meantime, thanks to Sarah Lennon of Extinction Rebellion. Thank you. And it's goodbye from me, Philip Lee. And from me, Sam G-Man. We'll see you next time. Thank you.